This is Famous and Gravy, a podcast about quality of life as we see it, one dead celebrity at a time. You can also play our mobile quiz game at deadoraliveapp.com. This person died in 2012, age 63. She was born in Boston, one of seven children. She grew up singing in church and decided in her teens to make music her career. Grew up in Boston, one of seven. Whitney Houston. Not Whitney Houston, but not a bad guess. In the late 1960s, she joined the Munich company of the rock musical Hair and relocated to Germany. Germany and Hair. Okay, I love a good musical theater. I should be able to get this. Uh, Joni Mitchell? Joni Mitchell is still with us. In 2009, she performed in Oslo at the concert honoring the Nobel Peace Prize awarded to President Obama. Oh, gosh. It's probably Patti LaBelle. No, she's still alive. I don't know. (laughs) She had doe eyes, a cascade of hair, and sinuous dance moves. Ooh, sinuous dance moves. What I do not have... Twiggy? It's not Twiggy. It's a Twiggy. Not Twiggy. Not Twiggy. You're starting to hone in, though. Okay. She became a born-again Christian in 1979. That does not help me. I am so sorry. Her voice, airy and ethereal or brightly assertive, sailed over dance floors and leapt from radios from the mid-70s well into the 80s. Her music was a template for 1970s disco. Disco, 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 disco. Oh, give me a minute. Her hits include Hot Stuff, Bad Girls, I Feel Love, Last Dance, and She Works Hard for the Money. Is it Donna Summer? Isn't that Donna Summer? Donna Summers! Today's dead celebrity is Donna Summer. Yes! Take me a minute. Take me a minute back out there. I thought I was real hot stuff. Famous and Gravy. I'm Michael Osborne. My name is Amit Kapoor. And on this show, we choose a celebrity who died in the last 10 years and review their quality of life. We go through a series of categories to figure out the things in life that we would actually desire and ultimately answer a big question. Would I want that life? Today, Donna Summer. Died 2012, age 63. Category one, grading the first line of their obituary. Donna Summer, the multi-million selling singer and songwriter whose hits captured both the giddy hedonism of the 1970s disco era and the feisty female solidarity of the early 1980s, died on Thursday at her home in Naples, Florida. She was 63. Pretty good. 
Really good. I like the adjective followed by the like noun to describe the decade. Yeah, well, that's my favorite part. It's the way they place her in cultural context. Giddy hedonism of 1970s disco era, and then feisty female solidarity of the early 1980s. That's good. Yeah. Would you have described the early 1980s as a feisty female solidarity era? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was too young to remember, and I don't... What do they mean by the, that? Do you know what they mean? I think they're referring to, like, the the music of works hard for the money and hot stuff of just sort of this, rather than being sensual, this kind of first person I declare yeah. type of thing. But, uh, yeah, I don't know about feisty solidarity. It's like, what does that mean? It sounds good. When yes. you read it the first time. I think with, with good intentions, what they meant to say is empowered. Maybe it was there, but does it actually stand out compared to the mid-80s or late 70s or 90s, 2000s or, or is it even true? Or is it even true, right? Giddy hedonism of the 70s, though. That's great. Giddy. Giddy, yeah. I think so. Disco, to me, is a little bit silly. It's so, you know, over the top. The outfits are kind of ridiculous, and the music is, like, assertive, and the, you know, lights and spectacle of it all is just so, like, glittering and dazzling that I think that giddy is not a bad word. And okay. giddy hedonism is kind of clever. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's like hedonism, which is a bad thing, but it's giddy, so I don't know. It's okay. It's bubbly. It's yeah, okay. they're giggling about it. And everybody was coked up, so it's okay. Yes. Yeah. What did they say about multi-million? Something sounded yeah, off to me. Yeah, they didn't say multi-million dollar. They just said multi-million selling. So that's hyphenated. Multi-million hyphen selling. It's weird sounding. Multi-million selling? Yeah, it is a little bit. Seats? Yeah, because they're saying Records, she's a multi- apples. Multi-million. <laughs> it must be apples. Yeah, I, I don't know. So this is what's funny about this obituary is that I read it and we both kind of looked up like pretty good. And then we start picking through it and I'm finding faults here. In the obituary, but not in the language directed towards Donna. Do you see any no, of that? No, but in a missing? way, they don't actually say a whole hell of a lot about her. I mean, they say more about the culture and like what's going on around her than they do about who she is. I'm going to defend them on that, though. I think that she was like defining of those two cultures. I of agree. The tail with that. end of yeah. one and the beginning of the other. I agree with that, but like. I don't know. The word diva got thrown around. You know, I mean, they could have said disco queen here somewhere. Which was an official nickname. Right. They don't really talk about her personality or what she uniquely did. You're right that her music captures these two chapters of pop music. Still, I think it's overall pretty good. What's your score? Nine. Wow, that's higher than I expected. Is it? Yeah. I didn't have much complaints. What did I say over the last three minutes? Well, multi-million is kind of confusing. And I didn't like feisty. You didn't like feisty. Uh, so that was it. Yeah. I'm going seven. Seven for the 70s. I think seven for the 70s. Okay, seven and nine. Pretty good first line of the obituary. All right, category two, five things I love about you. Here, Amit and I work together to come up with five reasons why we love this person, why we want to be talking about them in the first place. All right. Should I go first? Yes. I wrote acted her songs. So she talks about this in her biography. So she has a background in theater. She was in the performance Hair in Germany for a number of years, and she also took on a bunch of theater roles for about seven years while she was living in Germany from ages roughly 18 to 25 or so. So that's kind of her background. I mean, she wanted to be famous. She wanted to be a performer. She did sing. She was part of a rock group early on. But she talks about when she starts really making records, you know, in her mid-20s, how her approach to songwriting was to sing the part of a character. She approached a song as an actor would approach a script, which I think is 
a lot of performers do that, probably, but I'd never heard it described that way before reading her biography. You say in the book you approached the song like an actress because mm -hmm. you didn't think of yourself as having that kind of really sexy persona. <laughs> it was really different, and so I imaged Marilyn Monroe and just began to think, well, how would Marilyn sing this song? And she would be very soft, and, and then I, you know, I, I started playing with the thought in my mind, and then I, so as I began to sort of think of it her way, through her, I began to understand who the song was for and who the song was about. And I tapped into it and, and recorded it. I think what it was for her was liberating. That was a way of performing and coming up with songs that made her feel comfortable enough to be able to do it, you know, full-throated. I like that approach to art. So it's singing as storytelling, but not necessarily your own story. Yeah, but I don't think you can do it effectively unless you have some connection with that character. Yes. I guess the reason this is a thing I love is that it's something I'd never thought about before, and it's something I'd like to incorporate into my life. Yeah, because it's kind of what we do as just fans and amateurs, is that when we are singing somebody else's song in the car or the shower or at a party, we're just trying to channel them. Yes. They may be trying to channel somebody else, but karaoke is that. Yeah. It's just channeling somebody else. So maybe overall what it is really is a relationship to music. As a musician, it's a relationship to music that I like. Yes. So that's my number one. I need to think about that one. I don't know if I love it. Okay. It's going to settle in. Okay. First, I was bothered by it. Yeah. Now, I'm kind of okay with it. Okay. You got uh, so I'll take number two. Yeah. Um, I went with uh, family togetherness. Ah, that's actually kind of on mine, too. The environment she grew up in. Yes. She was in a three-story house with, like, four families in it. It's like her and her family and one floor and then one set of aunts and uncles and cousins on another floor and another set of aunts and uncles and cousins on the third floor. And she said, all together, maybe 20 children in the household. And what she described it as is like, how could we not be singing? There were just 20 kids running around, and it just felt like singing all the time. So A, I just like the structure of that household, mm -hmm. the community support. But secondly, I like how she accredits that to her singing ability. Yeah. It was just the togetherness that basically brought about song yeah. and brought about a vibrance in the household. And so I like that about her. Uh, and one example I saw is that when she did, when Love to Love You Baby hit the charts, uh, the first thing she did was not buy herself a house. She bought her parents a new house. And she just has a really great sense of family. Good answer. All right. Should I take number three? Yes. I'm going to go with gardening and painting. Her home life is actually really great, like really great, especially after the mid-80s when she sort of commits to being at home a little bit more. And by this point, she's got three children, and they're on this farm in Thousand Oaks, California. And when she describes this period of her life, it sounds like there's some real you know, family drama in some places, but it also sounds really great. So she takes up painting because her neighbor, Sylvester Stallone, turned her on to it. Oh, I love a celebrity's neighbors. Yeah, isn't that great? And like Rambo, you know, watching Bob Ross sounds pretty great, right? And like getting Donna Summer into it too. She's a very creative individual, right? She's sort of bubbling all over the place. And she's also really into gardening. She talks about another famous neighbor, Sophia Loren, you know, they would talk about gardening and they'd talk about like having each other over for dinner. She actually cooked uh, an Italian dinner for Sophia Loren, who's Italian. And it was apparently a disaster to kind of like 
great let's all have a good laugh fiasco where she got a lot of her family to try and cook an Italian meal. Anyway, there's a, a picture of her home life that's like creative, but also, you know, sort of indulging in the small, gardening and painting. That to me, those two things kind of captured. So together, how would you capture those in a thing you love? This is also a like breathing life into a lively, vivacious home. That's what I hear and see in her story a lot. To the point of parenting, her daughters are all very successful, well-balanced, like healthy individuals. And she's a very proud mother. And her second marriage, we'll get to this in a second, really does sound like a very well-balanced, great marriage. So there is a commitment to the sort of like, my home needs to be a sacred, wonderful place where creative things are happening, where relationships are nurtured, but where there's sort of, you know, an attention to family. I guess these gardening and painting, in a way, are the outward expressions of the inward idea that you pointed to with your number two. But I want to have a home where I'm doing those kinds of things, where, where I'm gardening on the weekends and, you know, where I'm like, you know what, let's take Saturday to go paint a landscape somewhere. Yeah, it's admirable. Yeah. It's admirable and unexpected. Totally, totally. So that's my number three. Okay, I like it. So number four, I went, she was an early advocate for mental health. So you alluded in the quiz to her being a born-again Christian in the late 70s, but she went through a major depressive cycle yes. after that first kind of round of stardom. I think there was some inauthenticness to this character that she was playing. Yeah. I think there was a lot of loneliness to it, but she said things like, nobody could see me. The only people that could see me were God. And she was very open to the fact that she was on the brink of suicide. Yeah. And she talked about this in the 80s and 90s and in interviews and all. And that was just, it was still not that common to be a celebrity open about those kind of troubles at the time. Yeah. I'm sitting here looking at you. You look so composed, so secure, so confident. Mm. Are you all these things? I don't think so. I'm a nervous wreck, I think, most of the time. What I'm rewarding her, I guess, for a thing I love is the bravery, right? I don't think it made any uh, tremendous difference at that time. It wasn't a public conversation as much as it is, say, today, but the bravery of being open about it. That's great, actually. As you're describing, I'm like, yeah, I saw that and learned that, but I didn't quite realize its importance. And it was, I mean, it's not dissimilar to when we did an episode on Shirley Temple. Yeah. And she had breast cancer, and she just, before her, it was it was awkward to have a public conversation about breast cancer. It was a it was a private disease. Yeah, and she was public about it, and she invited the press in to talk about it. That's Donna a- Summer didn't do to that extent, but she was open about it in interviews within the same decade that she was experiencing it. It is something that's changed. That it's hard to mark of when in culture it became okay to say I'm hurting inside and I'm struggling, right, and being out with it. Yep. All right. Can I take number five? Mm-hmm. All right. I wrote Looks for Miracles. Now, I know on the past few Famous and Gravy episodes, uh, Muhammad Ali and Gary Shandling in particular, I've been drawing a lot of attention to spiritual pursuits. I don't want to make this something I'm doing too much of. Okay. But I do love it here. And let me tell you how and why I love it. In her biography, over and over, she points to, and here I think, you know, my God was involved. She nearly drowns in a swimming pool at age eight. She's walking on the shallow end and wanders into the deep end. And at the last minute, somebody notices she's about to drown. And she talks about, like, looking up through the water and seeing what she understood to be heaven. Then another example, in her teens, she witnesses a burglary that turns into a homicide, and she is hesitant about going to the cops with it. She eventually does go to the cops with it. 
And the boys in the neighborhood who had perpetrated this crime are now sort of out for vengeance. So she's no longer safe at home. This makes it okay for her parents to say, go ahead and go on to New York and then later go on to Germany. And she's like, had that event not happened, I don't think I would have had the freedom to move away and become the pop star I was always meant to be. There's another story where she, right as Love to Love You Baby is becoming a hit in America, she's still living in Germany. She is driving through the Black Forest with her husband, and she has a, all of a sudden can't breathe. They pull over the car. She collapses. There happens to be a heart hospital in this obscure little corner of the Black Forest where had that hospital not been there, she's confident she would have died. So there's another moment where she sees a miracle. I got two more. When she does get to America a few months later, she gets into a limousine and her song happens to be playing on the radio. Just coincidence. And she thought at first that this was a grand welcoming. They're like, no, it's just on the radio. And then the last one is she did have a suicide attempt in the 70s where the way she describes it, she was on a ledge uh, thinking about jumping. The wind blows, the drape from the curtain gets caught up in her leg and she's a little tangled up and it delays the moment. And a sounds like a cleaning lady walked in and sort of interrupted it. And that's the moment that led her back to the church. Yeah, her renewed faith. Okay. There's a lot of examples in there. They're all kind of extraordinary stories in their own, but all of them you could take a look at and you could be a non-spiritual person. You could be an atheist or a non-believer, but whatever you want to call and say, ah, these are just things that happen in a life. I think it's important to entertain the idea of miracles, to believe that a higher power of some sort may be involved in your life and may be intervening in these moments. So I like her spirituality in the sense that I like that she's choosing to see it in these moments. Whether God, if you want to call God, God, or higher power or whatever, is there in these moments, it's sort of beside the point. It's whether or not you're looking to infuse your life with meaning. That's what I love. Yes. Because you can look at it one way and just say, there, I had all these near-death experiences. And, or coincidences. And how lucky am I? Correct. Uh, or you can attribute it to just another word instead of coincidence of miracle. That's right. And that gives you more meaning in life, which is probably going to guide you through a more fulfilled life. So the thing I love here is looks for miracles. Okay. That's how I summed it up. And I promise I'll quit bringing up God and spirituality on Famous We don't know who our next episode is. Yeah, that's a good point. We'll have to see. All right, so let's recap. Number one, I said acting in her songwriting. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, you accept Uh, it. Number two? Family togetherness. Family togetherness. I said number three, gardening and painting, but breathing breathing creativity into the home life. Let's call it that. Okay. Uh, Number four, open about mental health struggles at an early era. Correct. And then five, looks for miracles. All right. Okay. Shall we move on? Yes. Category three. Malkovich, Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which people take a portal into John Malkovich's mind and they can have a front row seat to his experiences. Oh, I wonder if we have the same one. What do you got? Can I give you a word? Yeah. Italy? Oh, no. I don't okay. know. Yeah, okay. Good. All right, we don't have the we same don't. one. Good, good. Okay, so... Love to Love You, Baby. Yeah. This was her breakthrough song. Uh, was also, coincidentally, the longest song of the 70s. That's right. Hit number one. As you said, it's not very lyrical. It's, uh, it's... Orgasmic. Yeah. 
it's orgasmic, right? It was criticized a lot that way. It's a really sexual, sensual song. Yes, and a lot of the singing is things like moans and all that sounds orgasmic. Yeah. Naturally, it was a huge hit. (laughs) Yeah. So she would perform it. She didn't have a huge catalog back then, so this was like her main marquee song. (laughs) So there was one concert in Italy. This, This was written about in The Telegraph. And it says, she was in a tent in Italy, 5,000 men, almost no women, and was singing Love to Love You Baby, fairly scantily clad. And the guys just got so wrapped up that they began to push the stage back. And she had to run off the stage to her trailer out the back. And then the guys came to the trailer and started to rock the trailer. Donna thought, I'm going to die today. I'm not going to get out of here. It's not the kind of song you just want to throw out there. The wielding of that much power over these 5,000 Italian men with a song. Yeah. you got to question it, right? Like, why does this have so much power? Yeah. And why are men so fucking stupid? What do you think you're possibly getting being one of 5,000 men by rocking a stage to where the performer has to go and run off to her trailer, then you chase the trailer and try to knock that over? Yeah, that I don't know. What I, is I, I don't what understand. is driving, like, what is the end goal? What is the energy and the accomplishment? Because you're aroused and you think that, oh, okay. She's this gonna, is going to end somehow she, she's in a gonna, good place. She's going to pick me now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't understand mob mentality overall. But in terms of this being a Malkovich moment, what you're interested in is her trying to understand what's happening to her? No, so I'm saying the first part is just the wielding of that power. Mm. What does it feel like yeah. to have that power? Secondly is the confusion that goes with people's reaction to this power you are wielding over them. Yeah. That's just, it's just a baffling of the human condition. And I guess you want to say the human male condition of that era. Where I'm trying to zero in on is the third. So it has something to do with, at the end there, that this is not a song that you just throw out there. Yeah. You know, that there is so much power in the subtle energy of this song and the way that she sings it and performs it as well as her character and appearance. And she thinks she's going to die from it. That is a really interesting comment, that you don't just throw this out there. I mean, what great art does is draw our attention to something that's hiding in plain sight. And it brings out emotions that were hiding right beneath the surface. And ultimately, you know, what is happening here is some version of sexual repression in a mob setting, which is why you don't just throw this song out there, I guess. Well, it's almost like it has hypnotic powers. Yeah, just given what the time was, there was a formula that could be tapped into of the combination of music and sensuality yeah. and the performer yeah. that could really just raise something uncontrollable yeah. out of people, and that's mystifying. I mean, to your point about having that power, that is confusing, you know? I mean, to be inside that trailer and be like, what in the hell did I unleash here? Yeah, well, it's to have that power and like then later just being afraid of having that power. Yeah. There's a lot of things going on in that moment. You know, it seems so commonplace to us now, right? Because Madonna, you know, mainstreamed that type of performance later on. But Donna Summer was um, actually like this. She was (laughs) pre-Madonna. They said this in the A&E biography, (laughs) is that she was the original pre-Madonna. That's so good. So it it just wasn't normal. It was new back then. That wasn't happening in Italy on stages in front of 5,000 people. That's a great Malkovich in a way. It's a complex one. But I think we narrowed it down. It's wielding this much power. Why does this power exist? Yeah. Should I have even 
unleashed it. Yeah, is there a Pandora's box of some sort here that I didn't anticipate? Exactly. Yeah. So how were you transformed? What were some of the th things that you were told you needed to wear or say or act like? You know, everybody has different portions of their personality, and I tend to be quiet and to myself and withdrawn. And I can be extremely outgoing when I need to be because I grew up in a big family. But, uh, you know, they wanted me to, to look a certain way, to, to be a certain way. And they said, well, when you're going to be a star, people aren't asking for you. They're asking for this image of you. And so that's kind of what, you know, was done. They began to transform me into an image. How did you like the image? I mean, I didn't particularly care for the sex image. Um, I thought it was kind of narrow. And I felt like I was going to have to break out real soon. Otherwise, I wasn't going to make it. Okay. Okay. My you are about pitch. I think you're going to like this one. Inspiration for a very specific song. So okay. this is a story from her biography. I think you're going to like it. The story goes, she was going to an after party for Julio Iglesias. She has an upset stomach and had to go right to the bathroom. And as she's going to the bathroom, she sees this. She describes her as an attractive restroom attendant napping next to a small TV. Donna Summer looks at this attendant and she feels this wave of sympathy for her and she just sort of blurts out, she works hard for the money. And then she's like, oh, that's a song. So she's feeling the inspiration and then she's asking her manager for something to write on and all they can find is toilet paper. So she starts scribbling the words as all these fancily dressed women are coming in and out of the stall and the bathroom attendant continues to nap. The reason this is my Malkovich moment, I love a burst of inspiration like that. Ah, yes. And then this song, she describes it as her most recognized song. That everything is happening in this moment, and all of a sudden she's hit with an idea for what becomes one of her biggest pop hits. And I like that it was inspired by a bathroom attendant. Yes. You know, who slept through the whole thing. So I want to be behind the eyes. The burst for, of inspiration. I've had those kinds of bursts of inspiration of like, oh, I got a great idea. You remember I texted you on Thursday and I said, hey, I've got an inspiration on something. We'll talk about it at dinner on Sunday. Yeah, and you just called me five minutes later yeah. and you're like, no, I can't wait. I need to hear it. <laughs> yeah, what was it? I don't think we can say because it's about a future episode. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. I have a nice end note to your story. Yeah. So that woman's name was Onetta Johnson, I believe, and she put her picture on the back of the album cover. Yes, I actually did see that. Yeah, that's a nice little addendum. All right, let's take a break. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Michael, do you know one of the ways in which I'm cool? <laughs> what did you have in mind? I have vinyl records. Oh, that is cool. Vinyl records are a lot of fun. I love studying the old covers, and I love that the music is actually on the record, right? It's like been engraved. Totally, and you will never guess where I buy my vinyl records from. I would assume that you are going to garage sales. That is incorrect. I exclusively get my vinyl records at Half Price Books. I'm sorry, you said Half Price Books, that and is you're correct. talking about vinyl records? Yes, Half Price Books is more than books. Board games, vinyl records, CDs, movies, puzzles, and even brand new bestsellers. My goodness. It's so much more than just books. Yes. But when it comes to books, I do know that Half Price Books is the nation's largest new and used bookseller with 120 stores in 19 states. And Half Price Books is also online at hpb.com. Hey, Famous and Gravy listeners. There's a podcast I want to tell you about called Dismembering Horror. It's hosted by Ryan McDuffie and Tim Aslan. And on each show, they choose a horror film and they break down what did and didn't work. There's something about a horror movie where there's always something to talk about. It's a unique format where you really learn a lot about filmmaking, and it sort of just captures the spirit of what it's like to walk out of a horror movie and sit around having drinks with your friends and breaking it down. I was actually on a recent episode and had a ton of fun talking to these guys. So Dismembering Horror with Ryan McDuffie and Tim Aslan. Highly recommend it. All right, category four. Love and marriage. How many marriages? Also, how many kids? And is there anything public about these relationships? She married Helmuth Sommer, German man, which is where she gets her last name. It's He spells it S-O-M-M-E-R. Later, she changes it to S-U-M-M-E-R. I want to ask something about that. All right. Well, they marry in 1973. Donna is 24. They had one child, Natalia. Everybody calls her Mimi. She and Helmuth were divorced in 1976. Part of it was that Donna had an extramarital affair with Gunther, who's a painter and a very problematic figure in her life in the mid to late 70s. There's sort of a tumultuous, dramatic relationship with Gunther. Okay. This is one of her big, big regrets in life is that she had an extramarital affair because it goes against her values as a Christian. So that was her first marriage. And then her second marriage, she married Brooklyn dream singer Bruce Sedano, July 16th, 1980. Donna is 31. Uh, they had two children, Brooklyn and Amanda, both of whom are performers. Yes. And artists of the, in their own right. So three daughters overall. And she's with Bruce until she dies. Yes. And uh, Helmuth was an actor with her in hair, I believe. They knew each other from theater. Okay. That's right. Hard to know what to make of that. I think that this is, in some ways, the most personally chaotic period in Donna Summer's life in the 1970s. It's 1975 when disco begins to take hold and when she begins to define it and define the template for it. Yes. yes. And it sounds like the child from the first marriage, Mimi, 
Yes. And the two girls from the second marriage, that she did raise them all together. And she said she tried to make it. She said this in one of the documentaries I watch as much as uh, just a normalized household as she could. Yeah. And it also sounds like they had a good relationship with one another from what you can tell. Here's my basic take home with this in terms of the love and marriage category. Had a rocky start, finds her footing in a new career, kind of, you know, on her rise to becoming disco queen. Manages to identify somebody who she has a real kinship with because Bruce is involved in a lot of her music. They're singing backup, but he's also writing together. I mean, he's right there with her. And they're like together, you know, for the next several decades. Like, I feel like this is when we talk about uh, dead celebrities who've had multiple marriages, one of the things I want to find is like, did you learn something from the first? Or are you carrying your same baggage and bullshit into subsequent marriages? I've come to appreciate that. Yeah. I see this as like, I made a mistake with my first marriage. I wasn't in a place where I could handle everything. And I think she finds a lot of comfort, solace, and love in her second marriage. Overall, I'd say high scores on the love and marriage category. Plus, again, her daughters look really well-balanced and really, like, she's proud of them. And she did make a joke about, you know, did, did they start asking about your sex symbolism in the in the 1970s? She's like, yeah, I just had to say it was a sort of different time. Like, the way she handles that, I'm sort of impressed with, too. That's basically my take on the so love I've marriage had, I've got two here. points I want to bring up. Yeah. One, you talk about these miracles that she looks for. Yeah. She married into the name Donna Summer. Yeah. And I don't know that Donna Gaines is going to be, like, top of the charts. Like, Donna Summer is just such a perfect, giddy, hedonistic name. Yeah. It's amazing Chip and Joanna have done so much with uh, the Gaines's name. <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> Donna Summer is a great name. And it was S-O-M-M-E-R. Apparently, there was an album misprint that printed it S-U-M-M-E-R, and she kept it. I didn't see that. That's, that's sort of perfect. Yeah, and it's a musical name, and maybe if she attributes so much to miracles, maybe she's saying, well, that was part of the reason for this first marriage. Yeah. Is that was part of my catapulting into success. I mean, one thing I really like about her is I, I do see somebody who's, like, working on themselves for their whole lives. I think that she's creative. She's got a lot of energy. She feels a certain kind of destiny at a young age. She moves to Germany and is in the performance hair. She has these relationships with men in Vienna and, you know, is living this sort of, like, artistic, extravagant, amazing life. And then she becomes a disco queen. I mean, one of the things she talks about in the lead-up to her suicide attempt and subsequent commitment to Christianity is that, like, there comes a point where it's like, how much higher can you go? You need something. This is why so many performers and artists fall into substance abuse. It's because you get to a point where there's just nothing left. And what she found instead of those things was a commitment to family and spirituality. It's like looking at a flower in the bud and you first see the bud and you say, wow, fantastic, the trees are budding. And then you go back and the leaves are out and then finally there's a flower. And I feel that when I came to America, I was in the budding stage. And uh, maybe I'm springing a leaf about now. And maybe one day I'll be a blossom. And um, that's sort of how I look at it all. I love that. I see that in the marriage and family record. Yeah. Okay, category five, net worth. I saw 75 million. That was the number. Jesus. That's good. It's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Well, and here's what I saw. This was almost the thing I loved about her. I mean, most of her hits are late 70s, early 80s, but there was enough lasting impact that anytime she chose to go perform, she would sell out the stadium. I like that, actually, that she sort of capitalized on peak fame. She continued to write and perform songs and try and 
you know, was involved in not just painting, but also it sounded like at one point trying to develop a TV show or, you know, Broadway musical. I mean, she did other things, but no matter what, she could get out there and sing hot stuff and the crowd's going to go nuts. Yeah, which is so generational because to me, she's not that common of a name. Mm. But I think just a little bit older than us, 10 years or so older than us. Yeah. And she's filling out arenas. VH1 used to do the Divas specials. Yeah. And they did their first one, I think, in 98 or 99. It's this mix of, like, Shania Twain plus Aretha Franklin and so forth. And she was going to be on it, but then when she met with the VH1 producers, they decided instead just to give her her own special. And that just talks about how broad her appeal is. She was a bigger star than I realized, actually. And I didn't quite appreciate just how important she was for at least seven or eight years there. Because it was, like, just before my time. Yes. Yeah. What else to say about 75 million? Anything? She worked hard for it. <laughs> I agree with that. All right, category six. Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, or Halls of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons as well as impersonations. So Saturday Night Live, shockingly nothing. Never a musical guest. Never though. a musical guest. I really hunted around for this. I was like, she's had to have been, right? I don't know why not. Every time you Google Saturday Night Live, Donna Summer, what keeps coming up is this Sherry O'Terry skit, Sema Down Now. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Yeah. It's, it, the, I was like, why does this keep coming up? And the reason is Sema Down Now, Sema Down Now, Summer Down Now, right? Anyway. That's it. We invite listener feedback on this. If somebody knows to the contrary, please write us to hello at famousandgravy.com. Please. I I, I could not find it, and I really looked. All right. Simpsons. There's a skit where Homer skips work, and he creates a little dummy in his work seat. The dummy includes like a bucket head and it's like a stick and some clothes. That is like he's stuffing a bed and sneaking out, right? Yes. And he leaves a tape recorder playing... Uh, he works hard for the money. Yes. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, that was the only, she didn't voice herself ever on the set. I seem to remember Homer singing Hot Stuff also at some point. The, well, I'll tell you the reference I have with the word Hot Stuff. Do you remember when Homer is worried that Bart might be gay and he takes him to the steel mill? He's like, you need to yes. go see some mainly men. Oh, Hot Stuff coming through? <laughs> yeah. Hot Stuff coming through. <laughs> that still comes up in my household. Like if Allison's in the kitchen, you know, cooking dinner and I'm trying to get around her to the sink, I'll, I'll say hot stuff coming through. So anyway, that was uh, what I found on The Simpsons. Halls, she does have a Hollywood star. Yes. Got it in 1992. She was uh, posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame organizers were actually like shamefaced that she wasn't inducted already uh, at the time of her death. She was on Arsenio Hall in 1989. Yes. I've got a couple other things, but go ahead. I wanted to amend it. She has an Academy Award. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. So of course. She had that song that... Um, Was that Thank God It's Friday? Yes, that went into Thank God It's Friday. Uh, my personal favorite on the pop culture stardom is she played Steve Urkel's aunt on two seasons of Family Matters. No way. Yes, Aunt Una. I think she only appeared in a handful of episodes. Is that right? Yes. Oh, that's good. Oh, I'm a little jealous about that. The only other one I was going to mention, well, she does uh, talk about, uh, she was on Johnny Carson, and she did say, It was always my biggest dream. I said, I know I'm a star when I've done the Johnny Carson show. So today when I go home, I'll look at myself and say, you know something? You made it. You know, which is absolutely true. Which is absolutely true. 1978 when she was on it. That's right. Okay, next category. Over under. In this category, we look at the generalized life expectancy for the year they were born to see if they beat the house odds and as a measure of grace. So, the life expectancy for women in the U.S. born in 1948, 
By the way, she was born on New Year's Eve. I did see that. Yeah. I was wondering that too. Is there something about being a New Year's baby that makes you like destined? Destined for stardom. Yeah. Anyway, life expectancy for a woman in America born in 1948 is 69.9 years. She died age 63. She died of lung cancer. She theorized that that was from inhaling toxic fumes and dust around 9-11 because she had a New York apartment. Yeah, she lived in lower Manhattan at the time. Yeah, so she was near ground zero when the attacks occurred. Some people have said maybe it was her exposure to secondhand smoke working in the clubs. She also had a sister who uh, died of lung cancer at a younger age. So young. Young. Right? Like this is the thing that sucks the most. And uh, it feels especially tragic. Like this feels more tragic to me than Tom Petty. I can't quite put my finger on it. I mean, part of it is that she is on the grace front. She was peaking. She was, yeah. You, you look at pictures of her from 2011, a year before her death. There's a tremendous amount of grace. For some reason, people who die in their 60s are in a kind of funny zone for me. That if you die in your 70s, you're not really dying young. If you die in your 50s, you're unquestionably dying young. The 60s is young. It is. I don't want to die in my 60s. I'm not sure I want to die ever. We're all going to die. That's one of the reasons we do this show. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and this is definitely tragic. She had people who loved her. She was still kind of a force. I, you know, I didn't want Donna Summer to go. There was know? not a decline either, right? You yeah. You talked about that Oslo concert two years before. Yeah, for Obama. Yeah. Yes. But 60s, I don't know, 63 is young and 66 is young. And I, I mean, now at 44, I have friends in their 60s. Yeah. Over time, it's more and more resonating with me, just this absence of whether you want to call it a fourth quarter or a third period. And I find it really sad because it seems like there is so much resolve that happens in that era. I agree. I would also say I have a similar conclusion as what I had with Tom Petty. I would have liked to have seen another act. You know, I'd be curious to see if Donna Summer wouldn't do something else sort of incredible because she is a creative force. However, I don't feel super robbed. And I guess we should ask this. Where are you on her music? I don't love the disco stuff. I like the hot stuff. Yeah. And I like, uh, <laughs> she works hard for the money. Yeah. It's okay. I'm okay with the disco stuff in the background. Yeah. But I wouldn't buy the album. I think I'm in on it, man. Are I, you? I think I am. Because every time we do a musician on this show, their music gets stuck in my head for days on end. I've actually enjoyed having Donna Summer's music in my head. And I'll tell you the one song that really stands out to me is, uh, do you know the song, I Feel Loved? Only by title. John Lennon actually like listened to that song and said, this is where music is going. So did Brian Eno. You listen to that song, it sounds very, very modern. It's actually sort of, um, I mean, it's a precursor to a lot of techno and a lot of like electronica that we have today. And the, and the layering of it, it's really, like, great. Yeah, music people really, really respected her. And a word I saw or heard a lot in the research was underrated. In fact, I wrote it here on the notebook and underlined it. Underrated. Wow, you did. Because everyone said it. It's all caps, She too. was underrated. <laughs> yeah, you have it in all caps. Yeah, so I'm sorry she died at age 63. All other things being equal, this is a very mostly complete life. You can save that. Okay. Let's pause. Hey, Famous and Gravy listeners, I want to brag a little bit. Oh, here it comes. I have upped my gin game. Have you? Now? I have, with a new top shelf gin that is not just a beautiful bottle, but 
actually really taste fantastic. Linden Leaf. Say more. Linden Leaf, it's the first spirits company to handcraft their ultra-premium gin at the molecular level. I'm sorry, did you say at the molecular level? That's right, Michael, I did. And you can buy Linden Leaf gin at shoplindenleaf.com, and Famous and Gravy listeners only can get 20% off their order using promo code FAMOUS20. That's FAMOUS20. 20% off. Linden Leaf gin, a perfectly balanced flavor experience crafted and tuned at the molecular level. Mary Tyler Moore. I think dead. The rules are simple. Dead or alive. She died in 2017. William the Refrigerator Perry. I think the fridge died. The fridge is still alive. Author Jackie Collins. Alive? <laughs> we lost her in 2015, I'm afraid. Willie D. I'll take a hint on this one. Willie D is a ghetto boys rapper. Alive. Willie D is still with us at 55 years old. Wow. He's good. Yeah, he's good. Test your knowledge. Dead or alive app.com. The first of the inner life questions is. Man in the Mirror, what did they think about their own reflection? I wrote, I don't think she liked it for a long time. I talked about earlier her insecurities from a scar on her face, and she just did not have a confident self-perception. More than anything, I do think that there's a real discomfort with being a sex symbol, even if she understood on some level this is the pathway to selling records and to selling concerts in the 1970s you know, and 80s. I do get the feeling that she learned self-love and came to appreciate her reflection. And obviously she's a gorgeous woman, so she should have liked it. I think I'm going to go yes. I think that when she got right with herself, she learned to love her reflection and learned to be grateful for the gift she was given. Yeah. I agree with you that this is definitely one of those cases that it's on a continuum. These overly sexual songs and performances from the 70s that were born out of Love to Love You Baby. Yeah. It seems like a lot of that came from the insecurity that she has from her looks. Sure. Like she saw that as a pathway, but she was also willing to embrace it, even though it was so contrary to this Christianity that she was raised on and later embraced. But I think it was that insecurity that sort of allowed her to do that type of performance. Yeah. Maybe it was after her deep depression and becoming born again and her second marriage that she really felt a lot more comfortable. And you can see the difference between like the Carson interview in 78 and the Arsenio interview in 93. Yeah. There's a very vast difference in the confidence of the woman in front of yes. you. Yeah. The choosing yes or no is a problem, but I'm going to say no. Okay. Just because the, the era that launched her career, I think, was was a lot of those the insecure years. I think that's a fair argument. I think you can go either way on this, and I think there's a case to be made in both ways. Yep. Okay, category nine, outgoing message. Like Man in the Mirror, we want to know how they felt about the sound of their own voice and whether they would have left it on a voicemail or answering machine. I think she loved it. I also considered this as a thing I love about her. I like her Boston accent. Yeah, her speaking voice is really good. It's great. It's really nice. It's like, it's soothing. It's assertive. Yeah, it's um, confident. It's like down to earth and real. It's like super. Yeah, it's, and it's very articulate. I yeah. almost feel like I'm being taught and every I, time she's, she's giving an interview. It's funny because sometimes I feel like just because somebody is a singer, they don't necessarily love the sound of their own voice. 
In this case, I think she does. Yes. I, I think she loves both her singing voice and her speaking voice. I think part of it is the theater background as well. Yep. All right. Category 10, regrets, public or private. What we really want to know is what, if anything, kept this person awake at night? There's one big public regret that we have not talked about yet. Is this the AIDS thing? It is, yes. So in the early days of the AIDS epidemic, she said AIDS had been sent by God to punish homosexuals. And she was very slow to take back these remarks. She said that she was unknowingly protected from the bad press by those around her. She didn't realize that she had caused pain. And she did eventually issue a public apology saying that if she had caused pain, please forgive me. And a spokesperson for the AIDS activist group ACT UP said the gay community made Donna Summer a star and what she said was not very Christian. And I think that a large part of her fan base was of the gay community. That's sort of disco, right? Yes. So I don't know what to make of that. And my hunch is that she didn't think too much about it because she's so sort of committed to the faith and didn't quite like take to heart how hurtful that comment was. And it's too bad that it was so slow to be walked back. But I think it's a genuine regret, and I want to give her the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I think it came not too long after being born again, where she was probably leaning a little heavy on the gun on thing. Way. Yeah, but yeah, I, I think it was regret, and it was played out. I mean, there was weren't there a few lawsuits and counter lawsuits yeah. for defamation? Um, oh, I didn't see that. It actually resulted in lawsuits. Uh, I've done everything that I can, and if this at this point people do not choose to forgive, it isn't in my hands. Donna Summer is also on the counterattack. She's launched a libel suit against New York Magazine for an article it printed saying she was anti-gay. But she says her real goal is to restore her reputation. The big part is I don't like walking into some place and seeing someone and having them look at me with that questioning look. You really hate me? I hate no one. I hate no one. Definitely a regret and a public one. Yeah. And regrettable. Like, that sucks. I wish she had never said that. Yes. On private, I didn't have a whole lot. I had two. Infidelity and her relationship to Gunter overall. The relationship with Gunter did sound really kind of toxic and dramatic and a lot of, I think, at one point even violent. And then also embracing the sex symbol role as a path to fame. Definitely. That's the big one, right? But I don't know. Is that actually a regret of hers? I mean, I don't think she begrudges her success. I think she felt like she was destined for it. And, you know, her manager, this man, Neil Bogart, for a number of years, like, encouraged a certain wardrobe and a certain presentation of her on stage and was really active in saying, this is the public role you need to play. And then he died at the age of 39. Yeah. Right after they had had a falling out, too. Yes. Who knows? I don't, I'm not fully buying the end justifies the means in that. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the sexual presentation of her music at that time. Yeah. But if it is so counter to the values that she says it is, then I don't see how it's not a regret. I mean, one of the things about her that I really enjoy is that, you know, when she's asked about who her favorite music was from the 1970s, she says James Taylor. Yes. Right? And she's like, I was, I was into country music and I listened to a lot of jazz and classical. She says, if you come to my house, you know, there's going to be a pretty rich set list. You're going to hear a lot of different kinds of music. I say that because I think that she makes a semi-conscious decision to embrace a certain kind of character and a certain kind of music that leads to $75 million in net worth, right? Yes. Um, and there is a kind of compromising of values there. So I think where she would probably have the regret is that I appreciate more than just this thing you know me for. I have talents beyond disco and I have talents beyond, you know, 
sexual goddess pop stardom. And that's not being seen because this image that you do see dwarfs everything else, crowds out any other aptitudes I'd like you to see, you know? Okay. Category 11. Good dreams or bad dreams? This is not about personal perception, but rather does this person have a haunted look in the eye, something that suggests inner turmoil, inner demons, unresolved trauma? So we talked about suicidal ideation and even a suicide attempt um, before she's born again. So I do think it gets to good, uh, but there's some bad years in there. It's funny, I don't ever see it in the eye. Like, With her, yeah. I don't yeah, I, even, though, even though I think she really is like serious struggles and major bouts of, of depression, it's not obvious to me in those, uh, in those earlier years. I think she had a lot of resilience. You know, the girl that leaves and moves to Germany at age 18 and to New York before that on her own, I think she has a lot of resilience built up despite all these near-death experiences. We talked about the suicidality that you just mentioned. I just, I see clear eyes and resilience. I don't know how she does it. Yeah, I agree with that. So what is our answer there? I'm going good dreams, and I wish I knew how she does it. I agree. All right, category 12, second to last category, our cocktail, coffee, or cannabis. This is where we ask, which one would we most want to do with our dead celebrity? It may be a question of what kind of drug sounds like the most fun to partake, or another point of view is that it might be a way to get inner access to a part of them that we're most curious about. She didn't seem just super fun. She wasn't the life of the party yeah. or anything. So none of that really has me that curious to just go have a wild time out with Donna Summer. So I guess my biggest curiosity is playing this sexual character as the launch of your career that you don't really believe in. Yeah. And that's what I want to talk to her about. And I know she explained it to her daughters as this was just a different time. But, you know, explain that, it to me over a cup of coffee. That's funny. I want the same thing. I want coffee. I'd like to have a morning coffee with her on her farm. I'd like to. I'd like to. Have oh, you're a going setting. Okay, go. I think so. I, I mean, never. You do that well. You always think about the setting. I always just think about the questions. Yeah, I I'm. Ask. I'm picturing a screen porch with a big fan and uh, really comfortable outdoor seating and a nice large cup of coffee with a garden in the background and some paintings uh, up around. And I, you know, I really like the home life here. This gets back to my thing I love about her. I love that her creativity is not just about profiting and about becoming the you know next level successful pop star. It, it is also about a creative life. You know, I want that more than I want the accolades. I want my home to be a place where multi generational people walk in, old, young, come in and say, "What a great home!" You know, and that's the image I have of her home life, whether that's wishful thinking or not. I, I kind of just want to hang out in that. I want to have a nice morning cup of coffee with her and, and talk about that. I think the conversation could go anywhere. I, As I said a minute ago, really like her voice, and I kind of feel like it would go somewhere cool. And maybe it'd go to the late 60s, you know, not too far removed from Bob Dylan in the Greenwich Village. Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe it's, you know, tell me about Germany, this sort of pocket of, I don't know, culture in the in the 60s and 70s that I wouldn't know anything about. Or maybe it was like, how do you really feel about disco? Wherever you go, I think I'd enjoy it. I'm with you, though. She's only so much fun, quote unquote. Like, I don't want to, you know, party. So that makes sense. But I like what you do. I like how you infuse the setting. But I'm going to bring a little bit more of that in. All right, then. Well, I think we're here. The Vanderbeek, named after James Vanderbeek, who said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. Amit. Do you want Donna Summer's life? I don't know. 
I think she had, you know, I, the, I said right off the bat, the, the familyness. Uh, I think that was great. Um, I think the career, like transcending two genres, the ultra-sexualized part of the early part, if that's not genuine, if it's not authentic, then I don't like the way that sits. I think it's fine. If it's authentic, it's art, it's music, it's rock and roll. She seemed to have found resolve in her emotional problems. The career lasted. She was loved and endured for a long time. But man, it feels tragic. It really feels, and it's it's with her more than it is with the other ones. Like I said, more than it is with Tom Petty. But I really feel like cancer won this one. Huh. And maybe that's just how I'm feeling today. But 63, for somebody that was doing so well, it was just too young. And not today. I'm saying no. I'm not taking a 63-year-old lifespan. Wow. I think she was robbed. I'm not going to let that slide today. So I'm going to say no. I don't want your life. Okay. That's a really good argument. I didn't think you were going there, and I think I, I want to react to it. Let me lay out the case okay. for me. I really like this life. I really like the music. I really like the journey. I really like the chapters, you know, the, where she grew up in Boston and what kind of teenager she was and then getting involved in rock and roll in the late 60s and then moving to Germany and then defining an era for a few decades and then turning to, you know, all attention to a home and spiritual life. Like overall, that playbook and those chapters are great. They're great. To your point about dying young, I don't know, man. I, I I hear you. I think you make a really good point. It does feel premature and a little bit unfair. It still looks like a full life to me. And I think that I'm inclined to say yes to the Vanderbeek. I'm inclined to say, yes, I want this life because I think I don't want to be scared of death, or at least not today. But whether or not that's a real thing or whether or not I'm just rationalizing right now because I basically want Donna Summer's life, mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm not being honest enough with myself because you're right. This is young. It's not just young. To me, it's, it's, it's thievery. I think I'm still a yes because I'm not sure that we're not all robbed on some level. And where the line in the sand is of whether you were robbed or not, it's a judgment call. It's something that oh, this is the biggest. This is the biggest uh, heist of all, though, to rob someone of of, of years, yeah, decades. Maybe, I don't know, man. I, I guess I never thought I'd make it this long when I was younger. I didn't think I'd make it into my forties. I mean, I do try and look for gratitude in my life, so that if I'm hit by a bus tomorrow and I get to have one last thought before I pass into the afterlife, I hope that thought is. Overall, this was pretty good. And I think she got that. I think she had an acceptance around a higher power. I don't think that's just about the good things that God or a higher power gives you. I think that she, if she got one more thought before cancer took her, I suspect, and I might be projecting, but I suspect it was one of gratitude. I, I suspect it was one of thank you for this incredible rich life. Thank you for this family. Thank you for this art. Thank you for this career and my mark on history. Thank you for what I was given. It's not hard for me to imagine that's there, even if this death is a little young. So I'm a yes. Okay. I think we're there. All right. I think you should do it. All right. Okay. 
Michael, you are Donna Summer. I am St. Peter, the Unitarian proxy for the afterlife. Even though you were a born-again Christian, I am still a Unitarian proxy. Yeah. So welcome and make your case to pass through the pearly gates. Hot stuff coming through. (laughs) (laughs) Peter, I think the case is fairly simple. Just because I'm a born-again Christian, I do not want to presume that I'm going to get let in. Early on in my life, I felt a sense of fate, of destiny, that God had something great in store for me. And to the extent that I was given a series of gifts, I tried to look for what God would want from me and act accordingly. I wasn't perfect with it. I made mistakes, but I feel like I fulfilled the destiny that was laid out for me. And in so doing, what I gave back to the stream of life was a sense of giddy joy, was a sense of expression and freedom and music. The richness that music can play in all our lives in terms of bringing out something that cannot be expressed in any other art form. I committed myself to that, and I performed accordingly, on and off stage. For that, I hope you let me in. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. If you're enjoying our show, please tell your friends about us. Help spread the word. Find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Famous and Gravy. And we also have a newsletter, which you can sign up for on our website, FamousAndGravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. Thanks for listening. See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.